This week I was struck by two news headlines. In the first on Monday, the Princess Trust Scotland announced the results of a survey they had commissioned. The survey revealed an unhappy younger generation in Scotland, with 9% of young people saying life is not really worth living. 23% of 16 to 25-year-olds said they are often or always down or depressed. And the statistics indicated that more than one in four, in fact 29% of young adults in Scotland, believe they are less happy now than they were as a child. And 18% feel like crying, often or always. Almost half, 48%, say they are regularly stressed. However, the second news item on the very next day Reveal that help may be at hand. With the announcement of the Atheist Bus Campaign, sponsored by Richard Dawkins, £140,000 has been raised to put slogans on the side of buses across the UK stating, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy life. And the campaign apparently is catching on in all sorts of countries around the world. However, rather than being alarmed by this, some Christians, I think quite rightly, I would join them, have welcomed this as an opportunity to return God to the public forum from the private sphere to which he's been consigned by our society. In an article in the Guardian newspaper, Nick Spencer highlights the statement, there's probably no God, and comments, where did this probably come from? It doesn't suggest the sales staff is overly confident about its product. If my pilot told me this flight to Paris probably won't crash, I'd be thinking about taking the train. The Christian public theology think tank, Theos, for which Nick Spencer works, actually gave £50 towards the project. The director, Paul Woolley, commented, stop worrying is hardly going to comfort those who are concerned about losing jobs or homes in the recession. But the poster will still prompt people to think about life's big questions. So, here's one of life's big questions. Not only for the depressed youth of Scotland, but for all of us. Would we be a lot happier if we lived as though God didn't exist? Or to put it another way, is belief in God incompatible with enjoyment in life? Our verse for the year gives a contrary claim to that on the side of buses. It states quite simply, as you've seen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And as we've heard, it's found in the Bible, in the little Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which God willing will be studying over the months leading up uh, to summer on Sunday morning. So do join us for that. So let's open our Bibles again and look at the context in which this statement occurs. You need to turn to Nehemiah 8, page 492. Uh, just a bit of 
brief background first. Nehemiah, the man who gives his name to this book, has just completed an amazing project when we get to chapter 8. Go back a bit. In 587 BC, as we saw in our series in Jeremiah, if you're here for that, his ancestors had been carried off into exile by Babylon, into Babylon, from the land of Israel. Their capital city of Jerusalem, its magnificent temple, reduced to rubble by the invaders. Now, here we are 150 years later. And Nehemiah is surprisingly given permission and resources by the king of the Persians, who now rule the world, to return to the land of his forefathers to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. Against all odds and much opposition, he calls his fellow Israelites in the land to work, and the rebuilding of the walls and the gates are hung is completed in an astounding 52 days. However, this is just a physical project. A far greater challenge now lies ahead. Not just rebuilding the walls, but rebuilding the nation, centered on the worship of the Lord their God. So when the project is over, Nehemiah says to these people who have been working flat out, Trowel in one hand, sword in the other against their enemies. Go home. I imagine he told them to go home, have a bath. Get some food. Get your best clothes on. And come back to the city. Because in five days' time, at the new year, we're going to have a really big celebration in the city of Jerusalem. Amazingly, everyone turns up. Verse 1, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Now, five hours later, Nehemiah closes the proceedings and dismisses the crowd with these words. Verse 10, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord Oh God, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, there's the verse in its context. Clearly, most of what he says here is specific to that particular occasion. It, it's a special sacred day to the Lord. After this service, I will not be urging you to enjoy choice food and sweets, though some of you would enjoy that, or to share with those who have nothing although all of us ought to be prepared to do that. But the final phrase, our verse for the year, is a general claim. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But it has a particular and timely application to the people to whom it was spoken. And to us who, like the people of Israel, may even this morning find ourselves in the same situation by God's grace, through his word, by his spirit. So let's look more closely at the circumstances which gave rise to Nehemiah telling the people that the joy of the Lord is their strength. We're going to be looking at this in more detail over the weeks and months that lie ahead, God willing. But, but let's start where we are. And to do that, we need to introduce another element into the proceedings, another emotion we need to begin with sorrow and joy. With sorrow 
and joy. As you read the story, it is obvious that Nehemiah gives the people a promise of joy because they were sad. Twice, he tells them, do not grieve. Now you'd think, having finished this amazing project, come together for this fantastic celebration with all the nation there, you'd think they'd have been jumping up and down and laughing and dancing. But instead, this huge crowd of people are weeping. And we are left in no doubt about the reason why they are weeping. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now the law they're speaking about here is the law of Moses. Preserved on scrolls, written in the Hebrew language, It's really the first five books of our Old Testament. We can't be exactly sure which parts Ezra uh, read on that day. It was called the Law of Moses, of course, not because Moses invented it, as some critics claim, rather because Moses received it from the Lord, the man who led Israel out of slavery into the Promised Land. This law contained God's requirements for his people for living a fulfilled life. It contained promises for those who obeyed it, what are called blessings. But it also issued warnings or punishments for those who disobeyed what God said. They were called curses. And it appears that this law and these scrolls had fallen into neglect. But now the people want to hear what God has said to them in his word. So just try and visualize the scene. It is an amazing story if you think about it. Here's the scene. Think of Hogmanay in in Edinburgh, okay, a couple of weeks ago. Absolute, the whole square is just full. Thousands upon thousands of people. And as the proceedings begin at dawn, the people are chanting for something, for someone. Not food or fireworks or music or dancing. Verse 1, they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel, to bring it out. Notice the word told. They told Ezra, the guardian of God's law, to bring it out. I don't know what they did. Maybe a cry went up in the crowd. Ezra! Ezra! Bring out the law! Must have been a great moment for Ezra who'd spent the past 14 years in Jerusalem pre- preaching to a brick wall or, or a recently been built brick wall. You see, revival or renewal of God's people only begins when we want to hear what God says to us instead of wanting God to hear what we want to say to him. So is this amazing scene. And they've built this big high platform in the middle of the square. And Ezra goes up the platform and there are 13 assistant priests flanking him on either side. And as he enrolls the first scroll, the people rise as one as he praises the Lord. And they lift their hands in response. Amen. Amen. Then they fall face down to the ground in worship. Just visualize the scene. 
And they rise to their feet and they stand in awe and reverence as Ezra unrolls the scroll and begins to read in a loud voice. Probably don't understand Hebrew, even my Hebrew. Nor did the people. They now spoke a dialect derived from Hebrew called Aramaic. And they didn't understand the Hebrew. But help was at hand for scattered among the crowd were 13 more priests placed strategically among the crowd who interpreted and explained what had been read. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is the Arabah. So there's Ezra. He proclaims the law of the Lord, phrase by phrase, section by section, scroll by scroll, hour by hour, from dawn till dusk, dawn till noon. And each time he pauses around the crowd, his attendants explain it. So, verse 9, the people could understand what was being read. And as they hear and understand, they begin to weep. They begin to weep. For five hours, they stand in the heat as a man on a platform proclaims the law of the Lord, weeping. In his book on Nehemiah, which I'd recommend to you, A Passion for Faithfulness, J.I. Packer writes, my voice is going by the way, so just switch this up, will you? Weeping. Why? Because of the impact that the understanding of God's word was making on their hearts. People weep when they're overcome with emotion. And the emotions that cause tears are occasioned by vivid realizations of particular realities. The root of spiritual revival, both in individuals and in communities, was, is, and always will be. Vivid realizations of God's holiness, goodness, and mercy and of the perversity, shamefulness, offensiveness, and suicidal folly that sees, he sees in our personal sins. He concludes, mourning and grief for sin will thence naturally result. And when these realizations of the truth about God and ourselves are clear and strong, the tears may very well flow. So we read, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord for five hours and more. Now, you may be saying, wow, wonderful story. What's it got to do with me? I wasn't there. Not a Jew. Doesn't apply to me. But God's law is God's law. God's character is God's character. God's law is God's law, whether written on scrolls or written on our conscience. And as the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Rome... Not one of us have kept that law. It is our universal problem where we are miserable, a universal problem. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. And when we truly become conscious of sin and realize we are not right in God's sight and cannot make ourselves right, but we are wrong, Terribly, irretrievably wrong. 
It will provoke a strong reaction. Alarm, fear, terror, grief, sorrow, even tears. And it is only at that point that the promise that the joy of the Lord is your strength becomes relevant and applicable to you, to us. If you are crying because of the credit crunch, then a win on the lottery will dry your eyes. If you are crying because you are sick, then a doctor and a drug may make you feel better. If you are crying because you are lonely, then a spouse may make you happy. If you are crying because you've been made redundant, then a new job may put a spring in your step. But if you are crying because of your sin, then only the joy of the Lord will give you strength. And the joy of the Lord can only be fully experienced when we first experience sorrow for sin. And that is sadly why many people, even in churches, have never truly experienced this joy of the Lord. Because they have never, ever really experienced any real sorrow for their sin. Whether expressed in visible tears or not. Some of us cry more easily than others, myself among them. Instead, people come to Christ and tragically even are encouraged by some to come to Christ seeking other things, money, health, spouse, job, or whatever. Sometimes God in his grace answers those prayers. But if that is all you are seeking, then you will invariably drift away when the problem is answered or you will live a joyless life. And the tragedies of the beginning of the year is that you can sit in Charlotte Chapel for week after week, month after month, year after year, as a joyless Christian. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul tells them there are two kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow, he says, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is when I'm sorry for myself. Godly sorrow is when I'm sorry for my sin. When, like the tax collector in the parable that Jesus told, I dare not even lift up my eyes to heaven, but cry out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And it is at that point not until or before that the servant of God can, like Nehemiah, say to you, don't grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So let's turn from sorrow and joy, secondly, to strength and joy. What exactly is the joy of the Lord? It is the joy that God possesses, the joy of the Lord, that he places in our hearts, which is made real to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's go back to an earlier illustration. Suppose that you were struggling in the credit crunch. Maybe you're struggling to pay off your mortgage. Looks like you could lose your job as well. You're consumed with worry, every waking thought. A nightmare when you manage to sleep. Focuses on how on earth am I going to meet my costs. Now, let's just for a minute rule out the lottery, which only fools play. Let's suppose that one day you get a letter in the post from a lawyer telling you about a long-lost aunt that you didn't know existed, has died and left you her entire fortune of several million pounds. How do you feel? Oh, well, you know. Listen, if I saw you, you'd be totally transformed. You'd be, 
How? My problems are over. You'd sleep. You'd rejoice. Fill with happiness. Now, if as we've said, our biggest problem is not the credit crunch, but the fact that we are guilty before God, estranged from Him, facing the just reward for our rebellion, the wages of sin is death. But here is the wonderful thing. When we are truly sorry for our sin, when we come to God with nothing in our hands, nothing to bring, no way of meeting His demands, no way of paying what we owe, God meets us with His mercy and says, Do not grieve, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, God does not give us what we deserve, but forgives our sin. So, the joy of the Lord is the joy of a restored relationship with God. Think for a moment of King David, Israel's greatest king. If you know the Bible, you'll know the tragic story. How he committed adultery. How he covered up the crime. Conspired to murder the husband of the woman he slept with. Thought he got away with it. Finally faced up with his sin by a prophet called Nathan. He pointed his finger at the king very bravely and said, You are the man. David's response was clear and honest. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. And he went into his room in private and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And at the conclusion of that prayer, Psalm 51, he prays and he says, Do not cast me from your presence, Lord, or take your Holy Spirit from me, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Get it? When you sin, you lose the joy. Because you break the relationships there, but you've, you've placed a barrier. See, some of you look back and think, you know, of that happy day, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sin away. Is it still a happy day this morning? Are you still rejoicing? Or have you lost the joy? You see, sin will always rob you of God's joy. And that's why some of you need to come, we all need to come to the Lord's table this morning, but some of us particularly, as God places his finger on things in our lives, and you're quite honest with yourself at the beginning of a new year here in Charlotte Chapel and say, yeah, you're right, I've lost the joy of my salvation. And as you come to this table in true repentance, confession of sin, the Lord says to you, do not grieve, the joy of the Lord is your strength. But only until you come honestly at that point. You see, we can experience in full measure what David only anticipated. You see, the coming of God's Son into the world was to solve the problem once for all. Remember, we just had Christmas. The the arrival of Jesus was heralded by an angel and a host of angels. And the angel said to those terrified shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus the Savior came into the world, died for our sin in our place, bearing the just wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and restored to that relationship with God for which we are made. And when we receive his salvation, we receive it with joy. It's the wonderful thing, isn't it? Wherever you go in the New Testament, when people heard the gospel, they receive it with joy. Their lives are transformed. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word strength 
means literally, it's to do with kind of secure places like tops of mountains. Strength means stability, security, protection. Now you see, the only real security in life, or for that matter in death, is in that restored relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. And that is why the Christian has this amazing gift that you can rejoice in all circumstances. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again. Rejoice. He's writing this from prison, chained to a soldier. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. In prison, Paul experienced the joy of the Lord Jesus was his strength. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians undergoing terrible suffering and persecution, reminds them that despite this, they can rejoice greatly because their future is assured in Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this morning, if you are a Christian, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In one sense, well, in a very real sense, the joy of the Lord is your strength, even if you are suffering from the credit crunch. Even if you are without a job. Even if you have a bad diagnosis of health. Or you've lost a loved one. Or whatever. It is a joy that surpasses circumstances. Which is why you can rejoice in the Lord always. If you're a Christian this morning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is your security. Your eternal security. The Apostle Paul puts it so wonderfully in those final verses in Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, you're placing your hopes of joy and happiness elsewhere. Yes? You may be enjoying it at the moment. You may have a very good job, lots of money, very healthy. Just got married, I don't know, whatever. But as we sang in our opening hymn, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. And I would urge you this morning as you come to this table, maybe to come for the first time and come in true confession. Admit to God that you've sinned. Don't necessarily need to weep, though I think we could do with a bit more weeping around churches these days. And we'll find that the book of Nehemiah is a book about a lot of weeping. Whatever the outward expression, there needs to be that inward sorrow and contrition for sin. For only in those circumstances can you know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Almost finished. Let's just say something in conclusion. Today we focused on two claims. One you'll probably see soon in buses around Edinburgh. There's probably no God. So stop worrying and enjoy life. 
The other is from the Bible on our verse of the year card. Take one as you go and a bookmark as well and take as many as you want to give to your friends. There's the verse of the year card. There's the bookmark. It says exactly the opposite. So maybe we should put a notice on the board outside the church. Or maybe we should get together and raise some money to put a different notice on the buses around Edinburgh and around the world. There's definitely a God. Now seek him and enjoy life to the full. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life, life in all its fullness. This is the wonderful word of God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray together.